0: everybody we are getting started here all right and there's mark that's the right to speak thanks for joining me
1: mark oh no Mike! And this is so cool I've, not, I've never done this before but it, i'm looking forward
2: to it
0: i try to do one one of these a week the idea is we got all you know everyone talks about how you know one of the things you miss with offices is there's no you know that water cooler effect that you bump into people and you get some you know get to hear their ideas and you get to yeah, you, know, you know, like this, the interoffice productivity spillovers, and I thought, why don't I try to create some of that on econ Twitter? And so I, I do this like once a week. Um, just for, very cool. Yeah, and we used. To- well, I was never,
1: I was never really a water cooler guy, but I'm glad to be <laughs> part of a Twitter water cooler.
0: That's true. When we work together, and for everyone who doesn't know, uh, Mark used to be my boss at Moody's Analytics. Never saw you at the water cooler. Always, always, always <laughs> You had your own water cooler in your office. Probably didn't. Joe. That may have been the problem. Yeah, that's,
1: <laughs> that was the problem. <laughs> Probably shouldn't have done that. You got to uh,
0: take that water cooler out and get those get those productivity spillovers.
1: Well, it was funny. I was in the office yesterday, and there was one data guy sitting there. Poor, didn't even have the lights on. I was pretty, pretty sad. But hopefully, we get into the office soon.
0: So it's still uh, it's still it. pretty empty there.
1: It, it's completely there was ten cars in the parking lot wow. you know, in the, in
0: the, yeah, so but you used to do quite a bit of remote working before the pandemic
1: yeah I, well I, as you remember, I traveled an awful lot, yeah, so yeah. you know, I was pretty remote already like for me the actually I'm going to do a lot less travel post pandemic, so uh I, you know I think that's a very good thing from my perspective, but i I do miss the office I do miss going in and. We, we got to get that proverbial water cooler back for sure. You're remote now completely, aren't you? Yeah, I'm, I believe you I'm yeah. three thousand miles from Newfoundland. Oh yes, yeah, right. That's right. Are you, you're still in Lancaster, correct? Correct. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Very good. I know everyone cares about everything else, but I have one quick question for you. How's the How's the business going?
0: It's going good. We're like uh, just like now, really, um, back to normal. We actually August was back to normal, and then in September we had a little Delta slowdown, and then October's back to normal. So. We're doing good. Good. Um, good. Yeah, things are good. So you're you're new to econ Twitter. How do you like it so far?
1: It's a whole different pace of conversation. And I the thing is, I you know I, I make mistakes, right? I made a mistake this hour's worked on one of my tweets, and then you know I can't take that back easily. So I had to <laughs> you know figure that out. So you know it's just a different way of doing things, thinking about things. It, you know the thing I like about it though is. You can't think too hard. You can't sit there and craft too too much. You have to just react, and I think you get a real sense of how people are thinking because they're reacting. You know, they're not filtering things. which is, I think kind of cool.
0: Yeah, you get to see that that non-filtered view from like other economists too, which is yeah, uh, you know. Absolutely. And you know, the one of the great things about Moody's, which is like was kind of like econ Twitter, is like the the monthly macro meetings where that was a place where you could really hear a bunch of economists to get in the room there and really think kind of out loud through things together so those kind of was a similarity to the two to me
1: yeah well i'll tell you what we started this podcast uh about and you were the first guest i had on the, on the podcast if you remember back on remote work and by the way yeah. the words you said that on that podcast about, about remote work are quickly becoming the consensus view back then it wasn't i don't think but clearly is but i find that to be uh, just a, a lot of fun and you know really get a chance to chat with people and get Get their own more on there, you know. So, you know, depends on who you are. Like Chris Dorides, you, you know, Chris, he's very careful, but yeah. you know, listening to Ryan Sweet, you get non-varnished view. So, which, it's kind of nice. You, you got to get
0: Ryan on Twitter for anyone who's listening who doesn't know Ryan Sweet. Ryan was, um, he was my media boss at Moody's. He's the, he's the head of monetary policy research, right? Or this yeah, time. yeah, and he is yeah. the best payrolls forecaster. Is he still number one or is he one, number two, number three?
1: Well, if he wasn't in today, I think he nailed it. I mean, literally nailed it. I mean, like down to the thousandth of the of the jobs. So he he got it exactly right. So yeah, if he wasn't uh, before today, I'm sure he is today. He's very
0: very good at it. He's always at the top of the Bloomberg rankings. And unlike I think a lot of you know professional economists in the like forecasting world, he was very very early on the labor slack story. <laughs> and he he was on board very very early. Ryan and I hashed out a lot of that together and sort of came to
1: a lot of the same conclusions together. So. Well, your influence runs very deep. We were talking about that paper today we, on the past about productivity and the effects of demographics and aging of the population, which, by the way, I'm really curious in your views on productivity growth and whether you think they're accelerating or not, because obviously that's a key question. I don't know if we'll get to that here or not, but I'm very curious in your views on that.
0: Let's see what happens. Let's jump into some data. What did you think about the jobs report today? How do you, how do you grade it? Was it good news, great news?
1: I think it was fantastic news. I, I, mean, I think it's very consistent with the idea that the economy is still tethered to the pandemic. The Delta wave did a, a lot of damage to the job market, the labor market generally, the economy generally. And now that the Delta wave is winding down, uh, you know, uh, people are getting back to work, taking a lot of those open positions, and I think the economy is kicking back into gear. And it's not just the employment numbers, which were all good—you know, big gain, upper revisions to previous months, lower unemployment, uh, the wage numbers—I mean, it's all good. But it's, you know, UI claims are down, and all the kind of real-time. Uh, data that we kind of follow to try to gauge what's going on most recently, all feel much improved. And I took great solace in hearing that your business is back up in October. It fits, you know, Adam. So (laughs) (laughs) so I felt pretty good about it. I mean, I have to say the thing I found most disappointing is participation and labor force participation, which, you know, is held flat at uh, around 61, I think it's 61.6 for the past more than a year. And we need to see that starting north. Uh, Otherwise, we're going to have some problems here. But I expect that to happen uh, imminently I, I was a little surprised we didn't get a, at least a tenth up in, in October but I, I expect that in the near future
0: that, my thinking on the participation is that it, it honestly it doesn't really matter that much because what does it actually mean right now what does one thing like if you think of who is holding back their labor supply because they've got ten thousand dollars in the bank and they um, you know maybe they don't want to go back to their restaurant job because they don't feel it's safe and they've got child care like any any sort of combination of factors whatever it is, what does their participation really mean? Like, they want a job. They've looked in the last 12 months. There's a lot of arbitrariness into that. And, you know, we saw that in the recovery from the Great Recession, where participation took a really long time to start moving up. And, but it did eventually. But, you know, I think it was more accurate to look at the prime employment rate during that time, which has showed much more linear improvement, whereas focusing on the patient rate would have been yeah. misleading.
1: That's. I think you make a great point. So if you look, I think you, if you look at the EPop, the employment to population ratio for prime age workers, twenty five to fifty four. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure you know the data, but I think it improved in October. It did. did yeah. It went up. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's always. A, yeah. It's always. You know It bounces
0: around a little bit, but it, uh, it definitely, it definitely went up in October. There was like, I don't think anything went down, or like a couple of narrow demographic categories, but yeah, prime EPop went up. So that's what I
1: keep so, keep my eye on. So what did you think of the report?
0: Well, I mean, it's obviously good news relative to what could have been it beat consensus so like you have to grade that on the good news scale the upward revisions mm-hmm. the last year also really good news so like i think you can't file it you can't file it anywhere but good news on the other hand you know you have to ask where's the million jobs a month and i don't mean that in like a um you know i don't think there's anything po- basically at this point right now there's nothing policymakers makers can do about that so i'm not like earlier in the pandemic i was like you know waiting for the ui ui tenants like oh geez we need these million months million job months but now it's like What's stopping us from that? There's nothing policymakers can do, but I do think that we should be, I think we should be hitting that. I think we need that fast recovery and that's where we should be at.
1: I I think we're going to, actually, I I know this is an intrepid prediction, but I I do that for a living, but I, I wouldn't be surprised you know, some point over the next three, six months. I mean, a little hard to gauge because of seasonal adjustment issues, and that's really going to be squirrely here over the next few months. But next three, six months, I if, if we got a month or two of a million, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I think, it, in my view, it still goes back to the pandemic. I was just looking at the uh, household poll survey. That's the survey that they've been conducting since uh, the pandemic began. The last survey ended in the survey right at the start of the survey week for October. And there were still Two million more people that said they were not working because they were sick compared to pre-Delta. You know, so just to give you the, the numbers, we were. I just looked at it, so I, I know them. One point eight million back in May, mid-May, three point eight million in uh, by October 11. So that's two million, and that you know that doesn't count the folks that are fearful of getting sick and you know taking care of sick people, that kind of thing. So I suspect that if the Delta continues to wind down, and, and you know, there's a lot of uncertainty and risk around that, but given what's going on in Europe and other places in the world and, and infections here. But if that happens, I suspect that, you know, uh, we'll get those people back in uh, taking those uh, record number of open job positions. And I wouldn't be surprised if we got a million, another million months or a couple million, month, um, a million months uh, dead ahead.
0: That's my thought, too. I think that I actually was expecting something closer to a million for October. But I guess you're, you're oh, really. Yeah, you're correct, though, that, you know, the Delta, it feels like it's gone, but it's not gone. If you look at those numbers. So that is a good I think it's not. Um, it's not like a big mystery, I suppose, why we weren't, why we aren't pulling out a million numbers yet. When you consider the two million people or whatever that are still, you know, being affected by it. So, but I agree. No, November, December, January. I think they're going to be, I think they're going to be big months. I'm expecting, you know, up around a million again.
1: And I think I can get pretty close to a I million. Mean, let me think for a second. So what, we were five thirty private today, wasn't it? And then down seventy because of yeah. government, which is probably seasonal. So let's say that's six hundred. And then how much do we get in revision? Uh, a couple hundred, 250,000. So we're getting close. <laughs> Creative math. I, can, I think it's a close million.
0: I, yeah, I think you know basically the way I look at it like Delta slowed us down to yeah. 300 and now we're back up at Delta's weakening. So now we're back up at like 600 and once Delta's yeah. gone we should be closer to like 900 or a million or something like that. Yeah. And I do think
1: that'll happen. Yeah. Yeah, of course the, the thing I worry about most is uh you know, it's wintertime, we're all back inside, you know, uh, we just see another wave, which could be a problem. So I know I'm glad that, uh, I mean, I guess,
0: I guess it is sort of all our jobs to kind of forecast that too, but I, that, that's such a hard, that's such a hard thing. It, and you almost don't even like, this is a bad thing for a forecaster to have, but you almost don't even want to like mentally go there. You know what I mean? You want to be, yeah, you want to be beyond it and, you know, not think it is a possibility. And so that's not a good mindset to bring to forecasting because it certainly is a possibility. Yeah. yeah.
1: So what is your view on, well, we saw this surge in wage growth. We, now it doesn't matter what measure of wages you look at, it shows a pretty substantive increase in wage growth. The employment Today's numbers on the average hourly earnings were close to 5%. The employment cost index, which is controls for lots of, of mix effects, and then land-of-fed wage track Everything's kind of pointing to pretty strong acceleration in wage growth. How do you think about that in the context of, inflation inflationary pressures are you worried about this at all or,
0: or not not so not as much because like because I think that the supply side of the labor market is going to come back pretty quick um, mm-hmm. I mean when we talk about a million jobs over the next few months that's going to be a pretty representative big improvement in labor supply so I think that should help reduce the pressure there if you were to compare that to something like shortages in the housing market like that's not going to be fixed on the supply side anytime. Soon. and so i think that's going to be a continued price pressure throughout the year and obviously you know, all these other durables who knows how much longer they're going to stick around too but i think this is the supply side is not gonna is gonna help us prevent that that wage growth pressure from keep going i mean it's a weird mm-hmm. we're, we're in a weird place because you sort of have like you know the Oaken's coefficient is broken like mm-hmm. the output gap is gone but the the labor gap is not gone. and so what's going to give
1: mm-hmm mm-hmm what what about uh, productivity? Are you given that work we did on the aging of the population and the headwinds that produces? It feels maybe maybe the way it, to think about it is that there's, there's still headwinds, but they're blowing a little less hard over time as the as, as the as the uh, boomers leave the the workforce and productivity growth will continue to improve. Or I'm just curious, do you have a view on that?
0: Well, I don't think the effect that we identified the aging of the workforce is going to weaken because I don't really think there's been a substantial Change in in, in serious long term retirement stuff. I don't I don't think that that's very real. So I don't think I think that the workforce is going to continue to age as you know as boomers are such a huge group and they keep moving up. So I don't think we're going to miss that effect. But I do see some things that will help us lean against it. I do think remote work is going to be a, yeah. a big help, and you do see some of these um, like strange signs of dynamism in the economy and new business formations. And um, I think that remote work is going to be very helpful for. You know, the, most of the new business formations we have are, are non-wage businesses so they're more like small businesses, freelancers, stuff like that. So that's good, but it's not going to be like it's not going to be those um, fast growth startups that really help us drive productivity. But I do think that the, the connection between being able to scale a business anywhere and start a business where cost of living is cheaper, uh, they just seem like such pro dynamism things to me that I do think that we are going to see an improvement. In the big business startup rate and more
1: more dynamism there,
0: but do you think that do you foresee something like that?
1: I do. I, I agree with you. I think remote works a game changer. I think it's going to be very very significant for productivity growth. And I think you know we're just early days, and there's some adjustment costs and transition issues we just have to work through. You know, and there's some downsides, but we'll we'll figure that out. And I think uh, you know six months, twelve months down the road, and as technology continues to improve, uh, and it already has. I mean, from the eighteen months when the pandemic first hit, we've made such great Great progress in terms of the ability to communicate with each other. I, I think this is a very significant you know, change. The other thing I'd point out on the productivity front is it feels like investment in labor-saving technology is uh, is up and up a lot. I mean, you can see it in intellectual property, particularly software investment. You can see it in the equipment investment uh, on information processing equipment. You know, it was a level shift up during the pandemic as everyone went on, uh, you know, work from home, but uh, come back down, you know, maybe a little bit. But so. I sense the that businesses understand that the labor market is, you know, it may ease here a bit in the near term, but it's going to be tight longer run given, you know, the, the, some significant demographic trends, including the aging out of the boomer generation and weaker immigra- foreign immigration. So I think they understand that and are investing very aggressively. And I think that augurs well for productivity growth. So I, I feel you know, I'm a, uh, you know, I'm still quite sanguine about the surge in, in wage growth because, like you, I think that's partly temporary. i will come back in as labor supply improves. But I also feel uh, increasingly confident we're going to get some good solid productivity numbers that will ensure that, you know, margins remain good, profitability is good, and, and inflation continues to moderate. So I feel pretty good about it.
0: So it sounds then like you do believe that tight labor markets can be a catalyst for productivity growth. Is that right? What do they call that? Verdun's law or whatever it is? Are you a believer in well,
1: that? I am. I mean, I'll tell you, I, I'm a business person as well as an economist. <laughs> you know, so I start. you know, I started my own company 30 years, like you. Started, you know, I'm, I'm curious how, how you think about it, but yeah I mean, if uh, you, you, the way a business person thinks is, well, what are the constraints on my ability to grow, and how do I relax those constraints? If my biggest constraint is finding you know qualified people to do the work that I need, I'm going to invest in things to be able to do those things without those people, to reduce the number of hours that I need. And I'll get much more creative I'll, I'll do a lot of other things, right? I'll wage, raise wages or get be much more flexible with work arrangements, like so, for example, Moody's to my great surprise, said, you, know, you can work anywhere you want. We have complete remote work. You can't move wow. to another country. You have to stay in the United States of America. And if you're a German employee in Germany, you got to stay in Germany because that complicates things enormously if you move countries. But you can, you can work anywhere. And if you're above a certain level, admittedly, it's a pretty high level. But if you live uh, if it's above a certain level, you get the same wages, regardless of where you live, as the person in New York. I mean, I thought that just blew my mind. Wow. I mean, that, that's just empowering, right? So you do a lot of things to hold on to your workforce, but one of the things you do is you invest in technology. So absolutely. I think, you know, the one reason why productivity pro- growth probably lagged post financial crisis, there's many reasons, including the demographic one we, we, wrote, we wrote about. But I, I, I suspect labor costs are pretty low and you know, businesses were focused on other investment dollars on other things. Like at that point, remember, it was the fracking and energy industry that was gobbling up all the you know, uh, investment dollars. But going forward here, I suspect it's going to be you know, more around labor saving technologies. So
0: I, I kind of believe it, but then you know when you take the reasoning and you apply it into another context, I believe it, and so it makes me question how generalizable it is and what I'm thinking of is you know when, when people who want to reduce immigration talk about the effects of reducing immigration, one of their arguments is like oh well, all these farms will simply automate, and then that will represent productivity growth, and you know productivity growth is the source of income growth over time, and so like that's just good overall. My counterpoint to that is like if you take if you remove labor and you replace it with capital, which is more expensive than the labor, like productivity growth has not gone up. Right. Like, sure, like if you divide out, oh, output yeah, by the number right. you divide output by the number of workers there, that in a sense productivity growth has gone up. But the way that productivity growth is supposed to affect well-being is through a higher output. And so, like, if you're just forcing labor capital substitution. You're not generating lower prices. Like if if costs don't go down, prices don't go. Output doesn't go up. So like, I, and sometimes I feel like that's kind of the, the logic implied in in Verdun's law. It's like, oh, we'll just we'll make it so that, you know, labor is expensive, and then people will buy capital. And it's like, well, but if they're just replacing capital, labor with capital, their costs have gone up. Is it really productivity growth? I don't know. Am I, th- well, am I, guess, I tying myself on a knot here?
1: No, 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 no. I think you're getting at the you know the distinction between labor productivity growth and total factor productivity growth, right? Which at the end of the day. Is kind of key to, to driving the train. And you're right. If all oh, you're doing a substitute capital for labor, and and you know not producing more output, then uh, you know I'm not sure. You know that doesn't work. But uh, my sense is that the investments that are being made here they'll, they'll improve labor productivity, but it'll also improve uh, total factor productivity because it's incorporating you know new technologies and you know new uh, uh, ways of uh, conducting business. And I'm I'm uh, my sense is that it will it, it will raise output as total output as well. My, my sense of it
0: sometimes like when I'll give you an example from from my restaurant one of the things we looked at early on was you can you can put in your own like you can get the pads that, that people put in their own bowling information right go like, plug in your names you know it, they sit like sort of at the at where you bowl you kind of do it yourself that's how it is at most bowling alleys we opted to go without the machines you go to the front desk you tell them your names you write in a piece of paper they plug them in for you so there's no machines it would have been a labor saving technology, but I don't believe it, would. it had we bought the machines instead of the letting like our workers do it. But I don't think it would be higher output. And I think especially in the services sector, that's probably a lot of what happened is happening is that you have these like adaptations that are raising costs, lowering, um, you know, quality of service and uh, not really sort of like it's not the same thing as like finding a new machine for a manufacturer that. increases output you know what i mean
1: yeah but you know maybe it depends on the industry the occupation you know exactly what task you're talking about but in the you know take the professional services or financial services industries you can easily see you, you know new ai machine learning techniques really displacing a lot of labor and not only cheap more cheaply that would raise. That could potentially raise output and the quality of the service or the product that that company is providing, just because it's, you know, using more sophisticated techniques for kind of doing what you know human beings are doing. So I, I can see. Uh, you know, maybe it depends on you know what kind of activity we're talking about in terms of what the impact might be.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I, the other thing is like, I don't think we can trust productivity data. Um, I just in for a while. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's always so. It's yeah. always so noisy, and there's so much yeah. quality problems right now. But I would say. I am bullish overall, and you know what else is funny? Like, of all people, Robert Gordon's bullish about remote work too, which I thought was really funny because he's uh-huh. he's like, you know, like, like yeah. what about life uh, life saving medical technologies? No. What about uh, automation? No. <laughs> what about AI? No. Like he's like Mr. Yeah, negative right. about all that stuff, but then remote work, he's like, yes, this one counts. <laughs>
1: that's right. That's a game changer. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. That's funny. I hadn't heard that. Uh, that's pretty funny. That's really interesting. I'll send you uh, that. Can I yeah, I'd like to see that. Can I ask you some uh,
0: some forecasting questions? Some Yeah, far away. we've got economists in the audience, so we shouldn't this shouldn't be I wouldn't do this in front of a normal crowd. But <laughs> the Moody's econometrics models, their time series models, what are you going to do with this period of time? What are you going to do in these like how are you going to adjust for this in your econometrics models? Do you think that we're are we simply observing a, a phillips curve type behavior because we've pushed output above potential and that's pushing up inflation and now we can finally have better identification of the phillips curve or do you think that the, that we're dealing with such a unique time period that like the, the data is not even going to be useful you're going to end up dummying it out
1: well my instinct is the former rather than the latter and, the, and my my instinct is conditioned on what happened after the financial crisis i mean uh, for people who didn't live the financial crisis that was a doozy of a period with a lot of dislocations. And that, in my view, was, I felt even more scarier to me than the pandemic, uh, you know, in part because policymakers just didn't have the tools that, uh, back in 2008, 9 that they have today, particularly the Fed. I mean, the Fed dusted off all of the tools that it, it invented during the financial crisis and used them during the pandemic. And moreover, I think we learned that you know muscular fiscal policies is important in times of a crisis and I don't think we really grasped that back in the, in the financial uh, yeah. in, in the, we, we didn't get that so that was a pretty scary period and a lot of dislocations in markets and I, I you know based on the modeling we've done since it's helped with identification uh, it, it, I don't view it as a discontinuous a discontinuity in the way the economy functions or operates so yeah there's differences and a lot of it was around regulatory changes and other legal changes that occurred as a result of the that was that were uh, you know the result of the crisis, the fallout from the financial crisis, like the uh, Dodd Frank, you know that that really changed the game in the financial uh, financial sector, lending, underwriting, and had all kinds of implications for credit growth and the deleveraging that happened afterwards. So there are things, there are some discontinuities, but at, at the end of the day, I think it's it, it's better, it's much more helpful in terms of identification than anything else. The other thing that it does is you get better data. I mean, you, you start thinking about things that, oh, I, I didn't even, like the supply chain right. issue, right? I mean, now we're all thinking about this and trying to get better information and data. And my guess is, you know, a couple, three years down the road, this the this, this supply chains are going to be much more transparent. We've got much better information, better understanding of how the, the dynamics work. And so we have better data that makes for better models, better models and data make for better forecasts. So, you know, my instinct at this point is that, you know, still early days and, you know, at this, we're still running regressions up to, Twenty twenty M. Two. I do think it complicate what you know, it does complicate measure uh, There's a lot of measurement issues like, um, you know, if you're a, a bank trying to write, uh, uh, build a credit risk model, like what's the foreclosure rate for for mortgages? It gets really complicated because, you know, of all the like in the CARES Act, the Congress said you uh, you lender cannot report to the radio to the credit agencies that that as a as a delinquency or a default. Right. So it doesn't show up in the credit file so what do I do with that? You know, if I'm a, if I'm a, if I'm a lender and I'm trying to model credit risk, you know, I go right. look for other data that measures it. So I, you know, those are the kinds of things that we'll do to adjust. But at the end of the day, I, I my sense is we're going to get, you know, we're going to get better models out of this. Not, uh, you know, uh, uh not, um, I mean, we're not going to be stymied by, by, uh, by this pandemic in terms of our modeling. I, that that's just my instinct. Uh, we'll see. Yeah.
0: I think like, um, you know, like it- it's sort of like you – pre-pandemic, you weren't thinking as much about getting the financial stuff in. Now you'll get – Then, you yeah. did, and then you, now we'll get the – like you said, the supply chain stuff. I, I think the thing that – I see opportunity and I see challenges depending on sort of which aggregate relationships you're looking at. So like I mentioned before, I mean clearly the relationship between output and unemployment is broken, right? Like we have no gap, but we have a labor gap. And normally, that relationship's used to, you know, get a coefficient to put output or to put unemployment in the Taylor rule. And so, should we really estimate over this period and let that coefficient be, and let the relationship between output and unemployment? Do we think that there is a permanent weakening? That especially because the volatility is so high that these are going to be highly weighted data points. Do we really want? Well, do we really want to do that? Weaken the relationship because now we, we. I mean, in a, in one sense, we certainly know now more than ever that output and, and um, unemployment need not go together. Um, but for, a, for a forecasting and scenario purposes, do we want to include that into our expectations of the relationship?
1: That's a good point. Uh, I'd say a couple things, though. One, uh, to your point about the data, if you don't believe the productivity data, I'm not sure you should believe the GDP data either. So <laughs> we'll, let's see where that lands after we get all the revisions and you know, all the data you know that comes in. We'll, we'll, we'll see exactly what that is. And the second point I'd make is in the financial crisis, we had the same breakdown, right? I mean, same dislocation between unemployment, the, the Taylor rule, did, uh, the, excuse me, the, uh, Oakland's law did not the, the standard, uh, you know, uh, 2.5 relationship between the apple cap and the unemployment cap completely fell apart, but it kind of resurrected and reasserted itself on the other side of the, of the crisis. So I'm, I'm counting on that same kind of dynamic happening.
0: That, on the other side of the- That's a great point that, you know, we really did. That's not the relationship that even mattered. Uh, it's really, uh, in my mind and tell me, tell me if you agree that, you know, I, you know, I wrote that paper um, at Moody's about using the prime employment rate, placing that in the Taylor Rule, putting that yeah. in there. So, yeah. But even that relationship has, has clearly broken down over the pandemic. So if you go back and you, re, if you can... rerun the Great Recession with the right employment slack measure, you don't necessarily have the broken relationship and output in labor markets. But now it's broken for sure in a much more significant way.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, So right now, I think EPOP for prime age workers is sitting at 78.3%. The only reason I know this is Ryan told it to me earlier today. (laughs) And uh, I think the regularity that you you uncovered was that every time that rises above 80%, at least in the past, I I want to say three or maybe four business cycles, that was pretty consistent with something that was pretty close to a full employment economy. Do, you, does, do I have that, did I characterize that roughly right? And do you do you think that doesn't hold going forward here?
0: Um, no, I think it does hold going forward. Uh, I, okay. I would say it's more like a linear measure of the tightness that works really well. So it's like a wage, it works for the wage Phillips curve mm-hmm. and that you do have like a certain level of it, which a uh, uh, past which it starts to feel like full employment. I would say it's more like 81 and a half. Um, so mm-hmm. like I think of like the late nineties as the benchmark, but yeah, so that, mm-hmm. that is basically how I would describe it, what you said. Um, but I, I, mm-hmm. I, do, I don't think that relationship is permanently broken. I think if you were to think that, you'd have to make stories about, you know, structural changes to the labor market, negative ones, which I don't think is true. I mean, the relationship is broken within the, within the crisis, basically.
1: Oh, I and see. And even yeah. till to, even right. till
0: today, yeah. because of labor right. supply constraints.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I hear you. It's not, it's not helping right now, for sure. Yeah.
0: But what's interesting, though, is that if you, if you do believe, I don't know, you make a great point about if I don't believe productivity, then should I believe output? Well, it's a great point. I do think even if you sort of um, adjust down for that, I do think that w- like basically what we're seeing is like output potential, output went above potential and inflation took off. And you can tell like kind of a micro story about that if you just like dig into, you know, it's, you know if you talk about uh, like uh, semiconductors or whatever, you start a micro story. It's not really a macro story, but now with me- yeah. median CPI up everywhere, I'm thinking like, well, is it a micro story or is it just output went above potential and inflation picked up? And if so then you really do have like a better phillips curve than you've had right you've just got a non-linear
1: one well the other complication here is that uh output on the good side of the economy has gone probably well above potential which is consistent with the goods price inflation you're observed we're, we're observing but it's still well below potential on the service economy. Uh, at least it feels like it's still well below i mean spending consumer spending on services is still well below where it was pre-pandemic so that complicates right. you know, that kind of that kind of analysis. Yes. Yeah, so. so you
0: couldn't say, you know, in the pandemic period for every half a percent point above potential, we observe this much relationship or this much inflation. You wouldn't want to project with that outside of the pandemic because the mix, it's not just being above potential, it's the mix of output that really exactly that was really exactly. exacerbated it. Yeah. Exactly. So we're, exactly. we don't even have a better relationship there. I thought maybe that would be a better relationship coming. In. Maybe exactly. maybe it's a little bit better though. I don't know. Maybe like that estimate because the Phil, I mean, you know the Phillips curve is not really very well estimated. Um, but Joe Gagnon argues that it is. It's just highly nonlinear. It's just you don't really see it until you get to the really low rates of unemployment, and that's where it takes off.
1: Well, that's my that's my intuition, right? It's flat until it's not. You know, feels like the bond market. It, your rates are low until they're not. <laughs> they move very discontinuously and. Don't know exactly what is going to, you know, what point that happens and, you know, what's the catalyst for it. But it's kind of sort of how it feels like to me. Um, I agree.
0: I, I've, I mean, I did I I know a lot of people <laughs> don't believe the Phillips curve like at all. But even before the pandemic, I just I think you get labor, you get labor markets to a certain level of tightness and it's going to be a, a pressure on inflation. It's just it's sort of like I, well, I get the econometrics of it are tough, but I just really think that's how the economy works
1: on the econometrics, kind of as metrics i recall i can't remember maybe you did this work or someone else in our shop around regional Phillips curves right looking at uh doing a panel with uh, with uh wages on the left-hand side and measures i can't remember which labor market measures we were using on the right-hand side regionally you know states metros and, and you could see it i mean it was there you know in the data in the in the, in the analysis that you could see the relationship yeah uh, that wasn't that
0: wasn't me but i do remember seeing that should we open up to some questions? See if anyone wants yeah, to, yeah, to chime in? Absolutely. Anybody got any questions? Nothing yet. We'll wait. We'll wait to see if anybody puts their hands up. But um, um, let me ask you about the housing market then. Because, you know, you're – what do you think you're more known for, Mark? Do you think you're more known for the estimates of, like, the macroeconomic relationships and these stuff? Or do you think uh, housing is your we, – we'll ask it to late. What are you more – Known for him, what do you like more? Because I, I always think of you as like a housing guy. That's like that's where your heart's at. Is that right?
1: Uh, you know my problem, uh, Adam, is I love everything. I mean, everything <laughs> looks like candy to me. Um, you know, intellectual candy. So there's not a topic that I don't find really interesting, and I can't resist but weigh in, <laughs> which is a you know a problem. But it, you know, uh you're right though. Housing. I was born in the housing market, right? Because it, it, our business. When we started our, our company 30 odd years ago, it, it was really catering to uh, banks and the banking system at the time was, was going to interstate banking and banks that were you know focused on the community of, at most of the metropolitan area had to think outside of their footprint. And, you know, most of those lenders are really, they, they, went, they, had, they needed the regional information and most of them were very tied into the housing market when we they're, they're big mortgage lenders. So, uh, you know, my, early days as an economist were really cut on housing and housing finance. And then we sold the company to Moody's in 2000, late 2005 six, you know, right kind of at the peak of the housing bubble. And of course, you know, the whole world was focused on housing and mortgage finance and the Moody's organization, you know, obviously the rating agency was very focused on it uh, because they were under, you know, there was all kinds of questions about what they were doing and how were they doing it and their ratings and so forth and so on. So I you know, spent a lot of energy and time on the housing mortgage finance industries. And then on the other side of the pandemic, you know, my uh, kind of a pet project, kind of my hobby, like, I don't, I don't play golf. I don't, you know, I don't know what people do, but I, I don't do any of it. I just, uh, my pet project was, how would you reform Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? I know sounds so weird now saying this, but, but it, it was basically just an intellectual game, right? Because, and I, we, you know, talked in Congress and to policymakers and really worked hard on it, trying to get across something across the finish line. But here we are, you know, 12, 13 years odd later, and we're still kind of thinking about it. But so, yes, I, I would say you're right. Housing, mortgage, finance, kind of top of the mind, of my mind for, for my entire career, for sure.
0: So what's happening in the housing market? It's it's a strange mystery, isn't it? I mean, I, mean, I don't know if it's a mystery. It's just highly unusual.
1: Well, it's demand and supply. I, I've always break. It's always demand and supply. I mean, on the supply side, you know, after the financial crisis, uh, you know, it was a bust, right? We had overbuilding in the in the bubble, and then it, uh, it took a while to work. Uh, construction collapsed, and it took a while to work through the over the inventory. Vacancies rates started to come in, and then you, re, you know, the entire infrastructure for building homes got kind of wiped out, particularly in key markets in the South and the West, where you need a lot of new housing. And it's just taken ten years to get kind of back. To kind of more typical levels of construction, and we're still not, you know, back where we need them. I don't think it's certainly not enough to meet the severe shortage of housing that we have now. By my calculation, you know, we're down about a million and a half homes, you know, and mostly affordable homes, we're mostly rental, uh, but a lot of single family uh, family homes as well. Uh, and then, on, then on the demand side, you know, you drive mortgage rates to the record lows, which the Fed, you know, did, and I don't think they had much of a choice during the pandemic. And then the, the thing, the real shocker, the thing that I did not anticipate at all was, um, was uh, work from anywhere and remote work and the mass, massive flows of people from high cost, high house price areas, you know, to uh, low cost areas like, you know, New York, you know, here's a statistic for you. This is based on credit file data we get every month uh, anonymized. I can see address changes at an individual level. Uh, the, the, number of net out migrants from urban cores to suburbs exurbs and rural areas went from 300k on a per annum basis before the pandemic to 600k no exaggeration by the way it, it feels like it's peak but it's not coming down of that 300 delta increase in net out migration 100k comes from the new york area Jeez. and they all go going to you know atlanta charlotte jacksonville tampa orlando austin and you know you can see house prices just go go skyward in those markets so you know, I, I think and the same thing from California into the, into the Mountain West. I mean, Phoenix house prices, I, this is just hard to fathom. Phoenix house prices have risen by one third over the past year, you know. So, uh, you know, that's Californians coming in and say, hey, you know. And a lot of it's second vacation homes. You know, it's not just, you know, people moving. It's just, I'm, I'm going to buy another home. And you got a lot of investors coming in as well because they see the shortage and the high rents and the accelerating rents and they're looking at their chops. So this is driven prices and, and rents up higher. For me, it's, it's it's weird demand and supply dynamics, but they're you know they're still at the end of the day demand and supply dynamics. Are
0: you seeing any activity? How is the household formation forecast? Which I don't know if you remember, but I redid that. Yeah, you did. First off, how is the data looking? Are we seeing an uptick in household formation in the measure that we created? Yeah.
1: So it looks like it bottomed out in the middle of last summer, and in fact, I think we had a quarter or two where we might have even seen negative household formation first time since depression but it's bounced back nicely since then and most recently you know talk about squirrely data though i'm not absolutely yeah right i mean but just taking that for what it's worth it does look like household formation has picked up a lot of millennial a lot of people who doubled up in the pandemic have now struck out on their own and that's why you're seeing the surge in demand for kind of rental and why one reason again why you know rental. Uh, rents are rising so rapidly. You see this a lot of millennials striking out back out on their own and, and, and forming households. So it feels like we're coming back.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And honestly, I mean, the data is super squirrely. I mean, there's not, I mean, the conclusion I came from all the work I did on that, there's not a very good estimate. I think we did as best as could be done. But frankly, if the household formation data said there wasn't a lot of household formation right now, I wouldn't believe it because there's yeah. not really another way to explain um, rents, no. rents and prices moving at the same time. It must be formation. No.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Demand is there. And then, as I said, a lot of second vacation home demand, you know, because all these high income net worth households have been they've been saving a lot of money. They're they got a lot of stock wealth. Interest rates are still very low, pretty good. And, they're, you know, they're in the prime age. They're me, you know, le, late 50s, early 60s. And they're saying, hey, you know, I can buy a second vacation home and uh, yeah, they've been doing it. And then obsolescence, I, it might that might be up, too, because that's, you know, climate change. That's, you know, um, hurricanes and floods and fires. And, I don't know this for sure because I haven't looked at it but I suspect that's probably up too and driving some demand.
0: Let's we got a speaker here, uh, a guy we both know, Jerry McGrath. Jerry, how's it going? You got a question for oh. us. <laughs> nice to hear and nice to speak to both of you to follow up on the housing and you, you the answer is between the
1: lines but you know there's a lot of anxiety among the real estate folks about is this uh, is this another bubble and will it crash like the the 06 through 08 bubble? And I was just wondering if you could speak to that. Well, uh, Jerry, hear your voice. I'd say you're fine. Your home is no problem, Jerry. I'm sure you're, and my home's okay. And I know Adam's house. Is okay, everyone else is. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. No, I, I, I think housing values are stretched. I mean, I think the collapse in mortgage rates is, you know, really uh, been capitalized in these higher house prices. You have a supply constrained market, you juice up demand with the low mortgage rates, and it uh, gets just in price. So if that's the right diagnosis, then if, if interest rates rise, that inflates the higher house prices, undermines demand, and you should see some some weakness in price. Now, my guess is that people will the first thing they'll do is they'll stop selling homes because they have this now reservation price in their mind. Right. This is what my house price is worth. I'm not going to sell it if I can't get this price. So what we could see is a, a collapse in or very weak transaction volume, home sales, and not real any significant declines in pricing, except in some of the really juice markets like at Phoenix, if, they, if you told me they're down 10% two years from now, I don't know if I'd be too surprised. They're still going to be up 35% from where they were four years ago, so I'm not sure. But, you know, but I don't think it's a bubble. And the reason I say that is because a bubble for me is speculative behavior in the housing market that manifests in the form of flipping. And that means I buy a home today and I might fix it up a little bit and I sell it as fast as I possibly can at a profit and by the way, leverage is really good in that transaction because I can juice my returns. But that I don't sense that working any significant scale. You saw what Zillow did. You know, they, they can't flip. Uh, so flipping that doesn't work. But you are seeing investors. But those investors are they're buying hold. You know, they're coming in and they're thinking long run. These are institutional investors that are going to buy and hold. And then the other reason I, I'm not overly worried. Two other reasons. One is we're undersupplied. You know, if you're undersupplied, pretty hard to get, you know, a, a bubble bursting and doing a lot of damage. And underwriting is very good. Uh, you know, I'm on the board of a mortgage insurer, just for sake of disclosure. But, you know, credit quality has been excellent and, you know, hard to imagine. And, and all the mortgages that are being originated, or at least 95% of them, are plain vanilla, you know, traditional 30-year, 15-year mortgages. So nothing fancy. So given all that, I suspect I, I we might see them go flat uh, down in some juice markets when interest rates normalize. But I don't think this is a bubble.
0: Uh, that's a, a great segue to our next questioner, who I know is going to love the answer you just gave Logan Matashami. I don't know if you know Logan Mark. He's a, I don't. He's a writer and analyst for Housing Wire, big housing guy. Logan, uh, you got a question?
3: Just to emphasize on the housing bubble question, I mean, I think the entire housing discussion has been ruined for many years because we talk about when's the crash going to happen and we don't focus on, you know, we, we just came off the weakest housing recovery ever from 2008 to 2019. Then loan profiles look so good. And I, and I say this as somebody whose family has been in banking since the late 1950s. We have fixed low debt costs with people that have been living in their homes 10 years plus with rising wages. And they're just living much longer so the notion that these people are going to sell their homes at a discount of 25 35 40 percent for no reason is not even a valid discussion to have the problem i see is the original concern i've always had is that inventory levels since 2014 total inventory levels have been falling purchase application data the mba data has been rising since 2014 we're just running into the best five-year housing demographic patch ever recorded in history and if demand picks up just a little bit more, we see what happens in 2020 and 2021. We have forced bidding. So we talk about investors or cash buyers or Zillow, this sector is still driven by primary mortgage buyers and demand isn't anywhere near what we saw in 2005, we see this big drop off. So we're kind of stuck and being stuck to me is the problem more than you know, home prices falling uh, 30 or 40% in a very short amount of time. And that's a difficult problem to solve. But going back to the jobs data, and this is for uh, Mark and Adam, if you had a choice between better productivity in the construction area or more construction labor, what would you choose? You go first, Mark. Why
1: do we have that choice? <laughs> Can't we get <give> more? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess your question is, which is more important here to increasing supply? Well, I'd say in the southern part of the U.S., the western part of the U.S., this, is, this isn't your slam dunk, this is uh, answer that you want, but in the south and west, I'd probably go for... Um, for labor. I think we have very severe labor shortages Uh, in the rest of the country. I go for, I go for productivity, (laughs) but I, I'd love to have both. Uh, I mean, as you know, better than I probably, the construction trades have shown very, very, again, if you believe the data, very, very poor, uh, productivity gains in, in recent decades It's been pretty tough for them to kind of lift the bar here and and produce more homes with less labor input. Yeah. What do you think?
0: I don't really understand the low productivity in the construction trades, so I don't know why it's happening. Um, I don't know what we could do about it. Uh,
3: we're still building homes with hammers <laughs> and nails. We did that in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Well, I mean, the construction productivity is terrible. It has always been terrible. And it's catching up to us. The expense of, you know, I, I've always, my work is a lot of believed on, you know, we're never going to see a construction boom because the builders simply will never oversupply a market. They've got to sell through it and the cost of new homes and how much more expensive it is versus an existing home advantage to the existing home buyer rather than a new home. So we're just stuck until we can break out of this. And I'm not sure as a country we even want home prices to go down in a big way. As soon as that happens, people say we got to lower interest rates or something has to happen. And all that does is keep rates low. I mean, rates are, rates are going to be low for a very long time regardless. But it's just we're, we don't have a real good solution to produce more homes in any kind of speed or fashion unless the government wants to come in and just pay everyone to build as many homes. That we. That's never going to happen. So it just... To me, I always talk about being stuck is more of a problematic issue for housing than housing's going to crash again, like we saw from 2005 to
0: 2008. Well, yeah, Matt Iglesias on the show last week, and he, he said, you know, what we need is a big mega corporation and housing construction company. And the problem is we've got too little concentration. We've got all these, it's all done by like small contractors. And at best, you know, the toll is like as big as it gets. But where are the mega, mega construction
1: companies? That's where we would get the productivity growth. That's a good point. I mean, Although the industry has become more consolidated post-financial crisis, I mean, I think uh, at least half of all units are done by the big publicly traded companies, Uh, still very fragmented by the standards of other industries, but certainly much less fragmented than it was 10 years ago. I do know some of the builders are experimenting. Like I know Pulte Homes, for example, they have a, a new facility that they're experimenting with outside of Jacksonville, Florida, where they prefab a lot of the things that go into the home. So it just speeds things up and uses a lot less labor. So... You know, hopefully, um, you know things like that come to fruition because I think you're right. That's a, that's key to addressing the affordability crisis
2: that we have now.
0: Let's uh, let's bring on another another guy we both know, Chris Lafakis.
2: Hey, Chris. Hey, guys. Awesome discussion. Thank you. So fascinating, Adam. Uh, you bring such a creative perspective that it makes for a really good mix with Mark. <laughs> I,
0: I'm just glad to hear from you, Chris. It's been a while. Uh, for those who don't know, Chris was is was at Moody's, um, so I got to hear. Him and Mark talk about macro stuff all the time. Great conversations. Chris is always my favorite energy guy to hear from at Moody's. (laughs) Well, thank you, Adam.
2: Actually, my question is not about energy, though. Um, Good, because you would have to answer if it was about energy. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask about the labor share of income. And um, currently, if you look at the labor share of income relative to where it's been in previous decades, you know, 90s, 80s, 70s. Um, it's lower now than it has been in those decades. And my question to you is, do you see that reverting to where it has been historically, I guess, especially in the context of this rising price environment where you have inflation picking up with GDP being above potential and, and whether or not that changes the labor share of income dynamic? That's a great question. You want to go first, Mark, or do you want me to?
1: Oh, you far away. I'll... Uh... Uh, sit back and listen to hear, hear what you have to say. It's a good question. Good to hear your voice, Chris. And, and Adam, you should know that Chris is now our climate risk guru. Awesome. So he's working on a lot of climate risk issues these days. So it kind of dovetails with his energy expertise. That's great.
0: So here's the way I think about it. I think there's two major things that have shifted the labor share. One is we had about 20 years of labor slack. Um, we never really recovered from the, the, the tech bubble recession and we haven't had a tight labor market since 1999. And I do believe that that's weighed on labor share. And I think that that's highly consistent with you know um, at least half of that time period, we've had um, inflation below target. So that's part of the story. And you can see that when you know we didn't get to full employment before the pandemic, but we were getting closer to it and the labor share had been picking up for a few years. So I do think that is a pretty strong sign that that's part of it. The other thing that I think is part of it some people would call this a measurement issue. They say, well, once you control for housing, uh, you know, it's really housing that's driving down the costs of, or driving down the labor share. And once you take housing out of the equation, uh, it's not really that big of a deal. Now I would say, well, that's not a measurement problem. That's like a problem problem. So I think that, you know, basically landowners are gobbling up a greater share of the economy. And I I think that remote work has the potential to lean against this because now people can move to lower cost of living places and you don't need to crowd into the highest land cost superstar cities in order to have access to the jobs that are in those cities. So for both reasons, because I think that the Fed is going to be much better on um, full employment over the next decade than over the last two and because remote work pools spread, uh, spread people out to places where they build housing. I'm, I'm fairly optimistic. What do you think, Mark?
1: I totally agree with you. Let me throw one other thing into the mix that isn't uh, that's consistent with what you said. I, I would argue that monetary policy was designed to weigh against inflation and inflationary pressures between the late 70s, really when Volcker became chair of the Fed, all the way through Greenspan into the you know late 90s, maybe even to the early 2000s. And they ran an intention, uh, Greenspan called it opportunistic disinflation, meaning I'm going to run an economy that's on the soft side. And so if I go into a recession, I'll be slow to get the economy out of a recession, keep unemployment high, and kind of wring out wage and price pressures and get inflation down. And that really, you know, that worked uh, to get inflation down. And I'm not saying that was the wrong policy, but a side effect of that certainly was to really put labor on its back heels. And it shows up in many ways, including the decline in the share of labor income, share of income going to labor. But here we are today, and the Fed is overtly adopted a very different policy. I'm going to run. Powell says I'm going to run the economy hot, and that you know manifests in perhaps zero interest rates until the economy is clearly at full employment. You know, obviously reasonable to debate that, but he's going to run the economy hot. And I think the next you know whoever's the next Fed chair, whether it's Powell or somebody else, they're going to pursue the same policy. So I, I think monetary policy also works on the on the side of ensuring that we are past the worst of the decline in the share, uh, labor share of income and that it will start to rise going forward.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good that's point. Great. I guess the, the other question I would have is, in, in, that, in, in that kind of environment where that happens, is there pressure on corporate profit margins? Do they have to make a choice between passing through rising labor costs and raising uh, or accepting lower profit margins? Or I guess, I guess if they had their druthers, they'd probably pass through 100% of the increase in labor costs, but will, will they be able to? I mean, especially in the context of if we move to carbon pricing.
1: Well, I mean, I think the nat- the the corollary to the idea
2: that the labor share of income is going to rise is that the,
1: the capital share, the corporate share of income is going to decline. So I, not that profits are going to decline, I'm not arguing that, but I think margins may come in, profit growth will be slower going forward than it has been You know, in this period when the share of income going to businesses has been steadily rising. So yeah, I think that one of the implications is is going to be lower margins or slower lower, slower profitability, the slower growth in, profit, in profits.
0: Yeah, I have to agree with that. But the, the one thing that we can hope on the other side of that, though, is that, you know, Mark, if, if it's true that tight labor markets do help generate a lot of productivity growth, you know, it's not going to really be reflected. Slightly lower margins won't really show up as lower share price or lower, you know, lower investment or anything like that because it's being offset by greater productivity growth, higher GDP. And also, I think, importantly you know lower land rents because land rents also come out of corporate profit margins too you know if you think about a company that um is scaling their startup and pre-pandemic they would have had to buy an office for 100 people 200 people 300 people but now they're just going to go remote that's you know that's a that's a higher margin too now obviously i guess the argument would be tight labor markets are going to ensure that the worker gets that in the long run which is great but i do think housing rents going down does leave some room for Corporate margins maybe they're not going down as much. Yeah, good point. I think we'll wrap it up there and call it. I, I don't. I try to keep the an hour or less um, for for the sake of the guests and the listeners and everything. But thank you, thank you for joining, Mark. It was really great to chat. Oh, it's always great to chat. It,
1: it. I really appreciate the opportunity, Adam. You're, you're the greatest, and I really uh, enjoy our. Uh, working relationship, and uh, you're just such a nice person, so thank you. Thanks thanks to you, Mark, and
0: you're also, you know, obviously one of the nicest
1: guys in economics, I would say, and
0: everyone who doesn't follow you yet should, should do so, and I'm sure that they will. Thank you. Okay, see you, Mark.
1: Take care now. Bye, everyone.